Welcome back. Oh, yeah. Remember that song, Warren? Welcome back. <laughs> You're aging yourself, Jim. Mr. Cotter. Last Rock. Eighth end. Up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Last stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Yeah, hi everyone. It's Uncle Jim Jerome coming at you with Warren Hansen, our World Curling Hall of Famer, and of course Kevin Martin, our other World Curling Hall of Famer, and uh, and me, not a Hall of Famer by any stretch, <laughs> with our first edition of the new season of Inside Curling. How are you, Warren? Jim, I couldn't be better. I'm back talking to you. How could things get any better than that? It's really a big day for you. Yeah, how about you, Kev? <laughs> Well, it's exciting. Jimmy, we're into a new year, and it's going to be a fantastic season, and uh, I'm really looking forward to all the team changes and all the catastrophes that will happen and the great curling. I'm excited. Warren's in BC, of course. Kev, you're in Edmonton, are you? As we do our first show, or are you at the Slam yet in North Bay? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm in, uh, I'm in Edmonton for the next few hours and then off to the Slam. You betcha. There we go. Warren, I'm staying at a very sketchy hotel in London. I'm here for my aunt's 100th birthday. <laughs> But I figured out, Warren, that sketchy people are my people. <laughs> <laughs> you said so it, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. A hundredth birthday. A hundred. Yes. Congratulations. Wow, that is fantastic. Yeah, we got a party this afternoon, and uh, she's very hip and a hundred years old. Another season of Inside Curling, and we're underway, and there's so much going on, and uh, we're so excited for all of you for listening and staying with us uh, over the last uh, several months now that we've been doing it. We've got sponsors. We want to recognize them. We've got Sports Interaction again, Nestle Boost, Coyote Tractor, and Goldline Curling Equipment. Thank you to them for supporting Inside Curling. Uh, here's what's on the show today, what's happening around the curling world. Okay, there's been a lot of talk uh, since our last show. Uh, we won't be able to deal with all of them, but we'll try and select a few. Kate Kateness was the president of the WCF for 12 years, and she's retired, and we got a new president. Uh, Warren, you're going to tell us all about that. Curling Canada's first major event of the year, points bet. Invitational took place in Fredericton a couple of weeks ago. We'll take a look at who won, and uh, we'll hear from both you guys uh, and your thoughts on that. By the way, if you want some action on curling, they do it again. They started this last year, and uh, and people love it, so... Thank you to Sports Interaction for supporting us. Our friends in the U.S. have been having some struggles, Warren, over the summer. The Grand National Curling Club is an organization that represents about 76 clubs or 6,000 curlers. Compared to Canada, the GNCC is sort of like a provincial association. There's a dispute over fees. No kidding, Kev. The club's refusing to join as members of the U.S. Curling uh, Warren, you're going to tell us all about that. See if you can suss it out for us. Finally, the first Grand Slam of the season gets underway in uh, North Bay. The Boost National, Kevin, you're there. 
It starts on Thursday the 6th. So we're going to take a look at all that. Hot Rock Topics. Uh, we're going to try and talk about a couple of things. One was the experiment Curling Canada uh, did when the teams were allowed 19 minutes to play the first five ends and another 19 to play the final five ends and ties were broken with a single rock shootout. The WCF did some experimenting last season. I remember we talked a lot about this with the no-tick rule. And it's now made our final decision about that and will be used in the men's and women's worlds. So let's go, boys. Uh, off to work for both of you. As I said at the top of the show, Kate Katniss of Scotland completed her 12th year as president of the WFC, and a new president was elected. Four people were in the running. Three vice presidents, Graham Prouse of Canada, Bent Remsfeld of Norway, Hugh Milligan of Australia, and American Bo Welling, who's a member of the WCF board. It was a bit of a surprise, Warren. Tell us all about it. Okay, Jim. Well, first, let's talk about Kate. As you mentioned, she was the president for 12 years, which makes her the longest standing president in WCF history. But I think it's important to note that at that uh, meeting held in the late part of September, IOC President Thomas Bach was there, and he presented Kate with a a great honor, which is the Order of the Olympic Rings, which... uh, is something that's bestowed upon very few people, so it tells you to a very large degree what the IOC thought of of Kate and of the sport of curling. So I think that was also a very positive thing to have happen. So as you mentioned, there were four people in the running to become the new president of the World Curling Federation. I might add that this is initially a four-year term, and I believe the way it's set now, they can run uh, for three terms, which uh, would be a total of 12 years. We should talk about the fact that initially... It was thought that this was going to be a race between probably Graham Prowse of Canada and Bent Ramsfell of Norway. Hugh Millican, Australia. Interesting, Hugh Millican is also a Canadian. Some of you may remember way back, Hugh Millican was also actually a Canadian mixed champion. Way back in 1986, played second for the team that won the Canadian mixed championship. So he's a transplanted Canadian in Australia. So I think to some degree, for that reason, people thought it was going to be between Bent and Graham. The fact that uh, Bo Welling came into running, everybody kind of thought, well, that's interesting, but he probably doesn't have a chance. But surprise, surprise, in the first round of voting, interesting enough, the European candidate, Ramsfell, who was a former world champion, an Olympian, was dropped off the ballot. Graham Prost barely hung on, and Graham is a former chair of Curling Canada back in 2010. And the fourth party in the race, Bo Welling, came out on top. Hugh Millican, the Australian, uh, was in a second-place position. And so in the final round, Ramsfell was off the ballot. Welling won an overwhelming majority. Millican finished second. So the new president of the World Curling Federation is Bo Welling from South Carolina. Interesting story on Bo. He's only been involved with curling a short period of time. I think it goes back to about 2010. But he's a golf course designer and also does a lot of work with Tiger Woods. So a very interesting position he has. He's a bright guy. He looks to the future and has a positive outlook for curling and uh, will likely provide the World Curling Federation with a very new and different direction. And I think it'll be a positive perspective. Kevin, you know Bo. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? Well, you know what? Congratulations to uh, to Bo. I thought, same as you, a bit of a surprise. But, you know, one thing that Bo was fantastic at is communication. And, uh, you know, one thing he didn't mention was uh, that he founded the uh, the Palmetto Curling Club, actually. But then also, of course, uh, he's the senior design consultant for uh, the Tiger Woods Design Company. So it's very involved in the golf industry as well. But, yeah, I've talked to Bo, geez, uh, since he won at least two or three times. It's uh, just talking about, I guess, the direction of our sport. And uh, I, I'm very 
very excited to see uh, to see Bo win and and his strength being, in my opinion, um, communication. He'll be communicating well with uh, the various uh, developing countries with the World Curling Federation. But I believe he'll also be very strong with communication with players and and building external relationships and and new revenue streams, which is very important. Very excited. Um, I think Bo will do a terrific job. But like you, I I, I really have to thank Kate Kateness who. Has, was just absolutely fantastic in the position for for very many years and uh, and just did a great job and and she deserved that award through the IOC no question about that Kev you were saying that uh, you love the idea because we have talked about it a lot over the months on the show about players have to have a place at the table and uh, you thought Bo will bring that what would you like to see him and the WCF kind of work at going forward right away well, I think certainly Kevin's been talking with Bo about the, the player situation, so I can maybe throw that to him. But I think uh, certainly the, the player end of things, I think possibly expanding events in the world to getting into a World Cup concept, uh, I would think would be on top of the agenda. But I'll throw it to Kevin because he's been chatting with Bo. Yeah, and in regards to the players, that's really up to the players. That's, that's not up to me. I'm, I'm, I'm long past done playing, but I think it matters. And I, and I think Bo will be welcome to that discussion with a future players group. No question about that. And the growth of, of a curling worldwide, well, I shouldn't say the growth of curling worldwide. It's growing like crazy worldwide right now. But to control it and, and to make sure there's avenues for our young players to to compete internationally as well as uh, the top high-performance men and women and, and make sure there's avenues where new countries that are coming up, which we've seen lately big time, Jimmy, and that's uh, the winners coming out of Italy in mixed doubles and, and both um, the men's and women's teams doing so well now. And, and, and that's just worldwide in, in lots of countries. So have, making sure we, we're positioned properly, I guess, as a, as a sport so that we can have that growth occur, which is really important. Bo, with Tiger Woods Design Company, Warren, I'm, it's got to be a full-time gig, isn't it? The president of the WCF? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how he goes about handling all this. Uh, it has more or less become since Kate took over as president uh, 12 years ago, but I'm not sure what their plans are moving forward. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, well done, boys, for your first discussion of the year. You, you, you both passed again. Curling Canada held a major event in Fredericton a couple of weeks back that was new to the curling world and was called the Points Bet Invitational. It was kind of unique in that there were 16 men's teams and 16 women's, but it was a sudden death event with only one game guaranteed. The money payout was pretty good at 350000 That is strong. How'd it go down in Fredericton? Well, we'll just review quickly who the winners were and what my thoughts are on that, and I'll talk a bit about the event and then throw it to Kevin. So on the women's side, I think a surprise with Jennifer Jones with her new team of the McKenzie Forson, uh, McKenzie Zacharias Forson joining her, and the fact that they came out the winners, they played pretty well. They seem to have molded together pretty quickly. And they certainly have given notice they're going to be a contender. I thought it was probably interesting that Mackenzie Zacharias, who was skipping that team previously, was playing second. And Carly Burgess, who was the third of that team, was staying at third with Jennifer. So it'll be interesting to see if that's the way they continue throughout the year. But again, I thought a very strong performance in their behalf. On the men's side, Reed Carruthers, everyone knew that uh, Reed Carruthers was a, was a strong player and he can play just about any position on the team. And along with Jason Gunnison, which had played together before, they were again really strong. I thought uh, gave notice that they're going to be a contender over the next quadrennial. So again, Reed is a guy who actually won a world championship at lead with uh, Jeff Stoughton back in 2011. So he's played every position. 
And uh, I think along with their front end, who are very experienced, and Smegolgulski and Negovin are also very good players. So they're going to be a team to reckon with, I think, throughout the year. The event itself, to some degree, I'm trying to figure out what the point of this event was because <laughs> it it wasn't a high-performance event because, well, they brought in a bunch of teams that really weren't part of that high-performance group. It was a sudden death, one life, and you're gone. And uh, teams had to probably go in there for five days to to potentially play one game. And you can probably look at the draw, and you knew pretty well you could be 95% accurate in picking who was going to win in that first round. So I thought it would have made more sense to do something of that nature if they'd taken the, the 16 ranks in men and women in Canada and uh, probably put them into a triple knockout situation, much like a slam event which could give these younger teams and the ones that are up and coming a chance to participate at that level and gain some experience. But I'm, I'm trying to understand exactly what the purpose was behind their thinking with how they put this whole thing together. <laughs> I thought also interesting, they played 10 ends, and in the event of that nature, again, I would, I would have thought it would have been natural to have them as 8 end games. I thought another interesting thing to note, the uniform situation has been an issue with Curling Canada over the years because of their sponsors yet the players were allowed to wear their slam uniforms, which had all their advertising on it, so I don't know. Maybe this is something that's going to happen moving forward. Don't know. A couple of rule adjustments I thought were interesting that we will talk about later in the show, so that was my thoughts on the whole thing. Kevin, how do you see it? Well, the uniforms, that was a bit of a surprise to have a Curling Canada-sanctioned event where you could just wear your season's uniform, so that was certainly welcome by the curlers, but for, for people like us that are watching from the sidelines going, hmm, interesting. Maybe that, wouldn't that be nice if it was a move where uh, the, the the gates opened up that way? That, that would be huge for our sport, huge for the athletes. Will it happen? I do not know the answer to that, but it would certainly be welcome. Uh, the single knockout idea. Back in the mid-90s, events we ran at West Edmonton Mall and the Flexicoil and so on, there were double knockouts back then. And that was pretty well received by the curlers. Single knockout's a tough one because if you just, you know, someone like a Brad Gushu, the first end, you've got to make a draw against five and you get caught in a path that you don't know and it stops and you lose the game kind of because of that. You know, and ice is really usually, I shouldn't say all the time, but usually more difficult at the start of a, an event. Um, the ice makers are, are just trying to figure out when the teams practice, there's no crowd, but then the f- crowds come in for the first game. And depending on the building, sometimes the ice can go a little wonky for the first draw or two, but in a single knockout situation, you're gone. Like if you lose that first one. So that's a, it, it'll be interesting. I've talked to some of the top curlers about it. I'm definitely going to talk to more of them in North Bay at the slam to, to get their thoughts on the, uh, on the single knockout. Because, you know, going to Fredericton, which is an awesome community, as anybody has been there, it's so friendly and, and receiving, but it's a long ways for a lot of teams. If you're from British Columbia or Alberta, Saskatchewan, to get to Fredericton is, is a long haul and very expensive. So to have a single knockout event right. in, in a location that's difficult, not that it's not a fantastic location, but just hard to get to travel-wise, is quite difficult. Because most of the teams traveled on Monday, practiced Tuesday, and Warren, I believe the first draw for anybody was Wednesday or Thursday. Nobody played a second game until Friday. And then people played their second game. Of course, losers are gone. 
and then the semifinals and finals. So kind of long type of event for teams that are traveling. And early in the year, the teams probably would have liked to have got more games in. But like I say, you know, I've talked to some of the players, but I really want to talk to a lot of them that competed and, and get their overall thoughts. And and I'm sure Curling Canada, now this was a new step for them. I'm sure they're doing the same thing after it's all said and done. You know, really good semifinals and finals action. You've had uh, on the men's side, Crothers Goose, who played next year end. Dunstone over Botcher. That was really a controlled game by by Dunstone, but another good game. The final was really good between Crothers and Dunstone. So, you know, and Jones Anderson tied up going home. Scheidegger Laws, really good game. Scheidegger. Christy skipped that, I think, Warren, right? Christy Moore skipped instead of Casey. Yes, she did. So fantastic that Christy did so well. It was great. And then the Jones Scheidegger uh, final was good too. Seven to four final. Uh, you know what? From a event standpoint, the games were good. It's just, are the players okay with single knockout? And, and of course, 10 ends. You know, obviously it has to go to eight. I don't know why they did 10 ends. It doesn't make sense. I do. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, Warren... People are going to get a taste of what Warren Hansen's all about. Uh, Kevin and I talked in the offseason where we said, weren't you do a, a segment called, I don't think so. <laughs> or, <laughs> Warren is going to keep everyone honest. Good stuff, boys. And uh, Warren, tell us about this whole deal where, as you say, effectively the Grand National Curling Club is like a provincial association and the, they're in the States and they got suspended. What, what is that all about? Well, they've had this issue going on in the U.S. for a few years, uh, and that's the the matter of dues. And uh, a number of clubs over time have refused to affiliate with the United States Curling Association because of a dues issue. And I can remember when Shaska became involved a few years ago, a very large club, and their dues would be very large because they charge per capita. And a big argument about, well, why are we paying this money to USA Curling? What do we get out of it? And, of course, if a club has teams entering uh, any kind of their national championships, they have to be affiliated, so they have to be paying dues. So what uh, the players that were going into uh, events would do was probably move to another club as far as the club they're playing out of. The same type of thing has gone on in Canada, but it's a little different circumstance here. So this was about dues, and it's it's a discussion that's gone on forever in the fact that the clubs are paying dues to USA Curling, and the question comes back, well, what are we getting out of it? Because most of the money that they're contributing is going towards the, the operation of high-performance uh, programs in the United States. So this conflict has been going on for a while. A number of clubs in the Grand National decided they weren't going to pay dues, I guess because they didn't have teams going to a national championship. The USCA suspended them. As a result, they went to the Grand National and said, we want you to suspend the clubs as well. The Grand National said, no, we're not going to do that. So the USA uh, curling suspended the Grand National. So that dispute is still going on. And it's one that's, uh, it's gone on in Canada too forever and in a little different situation in Canada because the, the dues that are paid in Canada are very, very low. But I can remember back even 20 years ago, in particular the Prairie Provinces, where there's, I don't know, maybe 400 natural ice clubs, you'd have a different group that would affiliate with Curling Canada every year because they'd only affiliate if they had a team going into a national championship. In Canada, the assessments are per sheet of ice. So depending upon how many sheets of ice your club has determines how much your dues are. But again, the dues in Canada are very, very, very low. 
And I know Danny Lamarou in particular has been trying to get that raised for years because what happens in Canada, uh, I don't know what their budget is today, but it's well over $20 million a year. The dues from the curling clubs is less than a half a million dollars a year. Yet there's a lot of programs being operated by Curling Canada, and to some degree, the money that to do that comes from the operation of the Season of Champions is, is where that money comes from. And uh, the clubs paying the dues are getting you know some benefit from the programs that they're running, but they're really not paying properly for them. U.S. is probably the reverse of that. So the issue of dues has always been a, a challenge, and I think it's a challenge still in Canada because they're not high enough. And in the U.S., well, we've explained what their problems is. So I'm not sure how much this is in your wheelhouse, Kevin, but uh, what do you think about all this stuff? Well, thankfully, I didn't do those battles uh, in the past that you have done, Warren. So I haven't had to deal with uh, with the budgeting at a national organization, thank goodness. But I guess the bottom line is figuring out, okay, out of X amount of dollars in Canada, the budget is quite high because curling is such a, a large sport with so many people playing it. Whereas in the U.S., the budget is, is less on the national body. But the bottom line is, okay, what can we do for the clubs? But we do need to run the high performance. We do need to have our young athletes try to get to the podium. That's really, really important in sport is to have your young people, you know, try to follow in the footsteps of any of the Peterson or, or Schuster or whatever the case may be, Corey Dropkin now, and these young people, we want them to follow. And, and we, you know, you have to, in the States, be able to promote and train these young athletes. So how does that work on a limited budget? I guess that's where this has kind of come to a head and uh, the clubs feel they're not getting enough for it. USCCA say, well, we, we need this money to be able to run our operation and 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 high performance so i think these these uh, arguments and fights are important in order for a, a sport to evolve and change and grow forward there are going to be some some struggles and some fights and i think that's a good thing now hopefully calm heads prevail they get together have some meetings figure it out how are we going to make the sport as good as possible in the u.s and carry on forward but i this is important for us to talk about the struggle that's going on in the States right now. To your point, Warren, it's happening in Canada before on a different scale, but these are important fights and both sides just need to take a deep breath and get together and figure it out and, and move forward because it's really important for sport that all the people involved get together and these big meetings are important. You know, we talk about that so much, Warren, about how we need everybody at the table, be it in Canada, US, or the entire world, to have these discussions so that things become more organized and understood and hopefully keep these uh, these disputes down to a, to a minimum. Or Hanson, we wake up tomorrow morning to see that US curling has defected to the Live Golf Tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Live Curling Tour. <laughs> the Live Curling Tour. But I mean, Canada has the same issue here in the fact that Canada needs a per capita assessment and they need money to be doing more things at the provincial level than they are. In many cases, the province has their their own assessment above and beyond what Curling Canada gets, but it's confusing. And I think uh, a per capita assessment across the country in Canada where um, a certain amount of that money goes towards the development at the curling club level in each province needs to happen as well. And it's inconsistent all over the map. And I know they've been trying to get that per capita thing in place for years, but it still doesn't exist and it needs to. Uh, Kev, the first event. Thank you, Sportsnet. Yep. Grand Slammer is taking place in North Bay. Sportsnet is going to be broadcasting this for the week. So thank you to them. It is the Boost National. Like you said, Kev, you're, you're heading out there in a few hours. 
Tell us all about it. Well, you know what? We're going to North Bay, which is fantastic. What a great community for curling. Talking to uh, Christy, Jen, and Jenny that uh, that manage the slams, and uh, they're so excited because the ticket sales have been fantastic, as they were. Now, I believe the last time, once again, I'm using my memory, so I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I believe the 2019 Masters was held in North Bay. That's the last time a slam was in there, and it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic, and this one's going to be the same. So what a good way to start off the year. One thing I'm going to be fascinated by are the new teams. And now that some of the teams have played, well, some of the teams have played a lot. Unji Gim out of South Korea. I think this slam is going to be their sixth event or maybe seventh event of the year already, Jimmy. Like just playing a ton. And that's a five-person team. A bit like the Jones team. You've got Minji Kim came on, who's a great skip herself, came on to that team is actually marked down as a front ender, but I think over time you'll see that Unji Gim is skipping and, and Minji Kim will throw third for her over time. But right now they're just trying to work that all out. But that's got to be one of the favorite teams in my mind going into into North Bay because they've played so much. The Hasselborg team, Anna Hasselborg out of Sweden. I'm going to be very interested. I don't think Wayne Madaw is working with them anymore. And they won the Oslo Cup already this year. So, you know, number one ranked team in the world. I'll just be interested to see how they come out of the blocks this year. I don't know what to expect, to be honest. They could come out on fire, but I, I don't know. I, I kind of have a feeling that that might be a little bit tough after the last few seasons they've had. It may take them some time. Right. Don't worry. They'll be good. They're going to win a lot, but it might take a little time. And Kerry Anderson, being the same team, you know, they know each other. They're comfortable, and they're really, really good. And Team Fujisawa. That's kind of my four. Isn't that funny? My four kind of picks early. Sweden, South Korea, Canada, Japan. So that's kind of the international flavor of the Grand Slam now, isn't it? I didn't even realize that, well, wow, four different nations. Sounds like on the women's side, the cream's rising to the top again, right? Well, playing well early, right? And and, uh, Hasselborg winning the Oslo Cup. Unji Gim playing well and, and playing a lot. Mm-hmm. Kerry Anderson playing well in the points bet. And, and they're just comfortable as a team and, and, and just so good. And then Team Fujisawa, um, same team again and, and really well coached. They play quite a bit. They work hard at it. They won an event. Uh, gee, I'm using my memory again, you guys. Uh, Advix Cup, I believe, they won earlier this year. So, so they've already won an event uh, this year. And then on the men's side, you got Brad Gushu, of course, with EJ Harnden after Brett Gallant moved over with a team Botcher, and I expect that team to just keep cruising. Brad's just so good. He doesn't have to play a lot. He's not going to play a lot this year, which I think is super smart on their team. Team Mowat, uh, Bruce and company, they haven't played much yet this year, so but they've been working really hard as they always do. So I expect those two guys to be tough. Um, Nicodine, mm-hmm. a little bit more health stuff with him, but he's coming back strong. I saw on some uh, on some social media, he looks good playing tennis. Do you guys watch him play tennis? No, I haven't seen that yet. I heard about it. Jeez, he's good. And I, like you said, semi-pro pool player. He is a strong tennis player. I was just watching some of it. And, and you know what? He'll be back. They won the Oslo Cup earlier this year, so they'll be strong. And the team out of Canada that I think is going to start the year really well is the new team Botcher lineup with, uh, as I said, Gallant with uh, Mark and Ben, uh, Kennedy and, and Hebert. I, I think they'll start out well. I really do. One thing that's going to be interesting with that team watching is Brendan Botcher really needs to, kind of like myself or a Brad Gushu, really needs to skip the game himself. He needs to be in charge. But you got Mark Kennedy and Ben Hebert who really love to give advice. 
And that's going to be an interesting thing going down the line. Early in the year, everybody's kind of going along, you know, a bit on eggshells. You don't want to upset anybody. But as the year goes on, it'll be interesting to see, you know, Mark Kennedy's help, <laughs> which is, is something Mark's going to do. He's, you know, a very smart guy. But Brendan needs to do it on his own. And I, I see there's going to be a little bit of interest there um, mid-season around Christmas. But I expect them to be really strong in North Bay. We've got to mic them up for the first one. <laughs> I think they're going to come out of the out of the gates really strong. They played well in uh, Fredericton also. So uh, it'll be interesting. I'm really excited, as you can tell, for this year coming up with all these new teams. And some are going to work out really well, and, and some just aren't. And it's, it's going to be fun from uh, my side of the microphone now to uh, to watch these teams the chemistry the ones that work and the ones that don't and then then jimmy at the end of this season which ones stay together and which ones shuffle a deck again before the next three years going forward to the olympic trials so that's kind of the the whole thing this year that i'm just super excited about are are all these uh, changes and which ones work which ones don't who reshuffles why and how does it work out wernsey what do you got to say well, I agree with Kevin on most of the uh, comments he has made. I think on the women's side, um, I'll look at a couple of other teams in addition to the ones he mentioned. I think Team Jones showed us in Fredericton that that team has got the right chemistry and uh, those young players played very well. So if they can keep that going, I think they will be a contender. I think the one we have overlooked is the defending world champion, Terrazoni, and she has a new front end, but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she has also already won an event in Switzerland this year. So I think, again, that's a team that could be considered. And the men's side, uh, again, I agree with Kevin's comments. I think, again, the two teams that we may want to keep an eye on as well were the two that finished in the final in the points bet event. Uh, Reed Crothers, if Reed keeps playing like he did in that event, he's going to be very close to the top, and his team keeps supporting him the way they have. And the team he played against, Team Dunstan. And Kevin and I were talking a couple of days ago with this team. This is Ryan Harnden and the Three Tuckers. I've been called that, but I rhymed with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got second, third, and skip. The, the, they're all tuck deliveries. They throw similarly, but, uh, well, it may be similarly. It isn't quite the same. Yet they, they had it going, so they could also be a team to watch uh, in the Boost National. The event is the Boost National. The host city is North Bay. And the host broadcaster, once again, of course, is Sportsnet, and they'll be bringing you all that action thanks to them starting Thursday morning. Hot Rock Topics. Last year, the WCF experimented with the no-tick rule, and they've decided... Uh, they're going to implement the rule this season into all, almost all the events, except mixed doubles. Warren, why did you read that rule to us instead of me? <laughs> sure, Jim. I'd be glad to. So we'll try to go through it quickly. If prior to the delivery of the sixth stone of an end, a delivered stone causes either directly or indirectly an opposition stone in the free guard zone, which is touching the center line to be moved to an off-center position or to a position outside the free guard zone, the non-offending team will have two options. Basically, they can remove the delivered stone from play and reposition the stone it displaced, or they can leave all the stones the way they were as they came to rest. So that's the rule. Kevin, your thoughts. 
I'm a big believer in this no tick. I think it was necessary for quite some time. The, the leads have just got so good at the tick shot. Well, not just the leads. You know what? The, yes, the leads, of course, they're getting better and better all the time, as all athletes do. But the sweeping is so good now as far as directional goes. And when it comes to tick shots, it's really about direction. As long as your weight is back eight to pretty much hack, as long as that's communicated to the skip, to the broom holder, okay, then it's a matter of just gauging the line and hitting a bit of that rock. It's because of sweeping and how good the leads are now, it's become a fairly simple shot, which means late in the game when things are supposed to be the most exciting for the for the crowd and for the TV audience or the streamed audience, tick, tick, and now there's nothing better than edge of eight. And in the end, skip on his first one, goes around top eight or side eight. And then even if the other team misses one, all they can do is lob another one in the eight foot and it's either a draw to the eight foot or an open hit for the team to win. It's boring. So the no tick is important. I think it's added a lot uh, to the to final end of the curling games. I certainly agree with it. I think it's great. And uh, if it's implemented into more and more curling, that's fantastic. Warren, what do you think? I agree with Kevin. I will add one comment in the fact that anything that we can insert into the sport that in the latter part of the games make things less predictable is a good thing. And uh, the current system, it's just making things too predictable. So maybe this will help. Okay, boys. Uh, speaking of hot rocks, this is a hot topic. Split 19-minute halves. Kevin, uh, Curling Canada introduced uh, that as one of their twists in this new event in uh, Fredericton. The game was divided into two 19-minute halves with no ability to carry time forward from the first half to the second. Also, all ties were settled by a single rock draw to the button by each team immediately following the conclusion of the 10th end. So, Kev, why don't you go first on that? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Um, I, I like the fact that something new was attempted. I think that's great. Timing per half? Sure, that's fine. I, I really like the idea, and I know a lot of the players don't, and, and I'll hear from them, no, no doubt, this week. <laughs> but I, I really like the idea of, of time per end. Uh, I really like controlling that clock. All the top sports are trying to figure out ways to be quicker. Curling should be no different. Eight ends is so good. And then time per end, that way you can't save time from end to end. Now, this was a step forward, being that instead of a whole game, it's a half a game. No problem. I don't think any the teams would have had much trouble with that. And uh, any any way we can make the game quicker without jeopardizing our sport without jeopardizing the chess component and the athletic component. Mm -hmm. And I don't think per end would do that. I know some people think that, but just get on with it quicker, especially early in the ends. But that's my feeling on it, Jim, is just the quicker, the better. I think that matters when we're trying to go to a bigger and bigger audience and a younger audience, the quicker you can wrap up an exciting game because we want the last end or two to be a huge excitement. And that that's, I think, in my opinion, really important. Warren, you, you love that idea of quicker is better. Everything's got to be quicker. And I think the 19-minute rule is a good experiment because it discourages people from trying to bank time in the early ends and throwing the rocks up and down as a result. I thought one interesting thing happened at that event, and I think it was Colton Flash playing the fifth end, found themselves in a real jam because they'd used a lot of time early. I believe they played an end of curling in less than a minute. I think it was something like 48 seconds because the guy was in the hack and, and virtually almost throwing the rock before the other <laughs> team's rock came to rest because they were out of time. Right. So I think that was a warning sign, and I, I think it's a good idea. The other rule they put in I thought was interesting as well because, again, extra ends, we really got to take a look at this as well, and that was they broke them all with a single rock draw to the button. I like the way they did it because what they did was they said, okay, in a normal extra end, 
Team A will have last rock. So Team A, you will throw first, but you'll decide which turn you're going to use. And Team B, you'll have to throw the other turn. And so what happened, and many times, you you end up playing the last end pr- primarily down one side of the ice. And you know that side pretty well. And the team that's now got that choice is going to pick the side that they know the best. And uh, in Two cases I saw, they picked that side. They ended up putting the rock to the forefoot. And the other team coming down the side they weren't too familiar with, with the other turn, didn't even make the house. So I thought that was an interesting twist, that it gave that team that now would have last rock and an extra end, a bit of an edge. And I think that whole concept is something, again, that's got to be looked at going forward. Extra ends do not fit into the time frames that we're looking at, with particularly around Robin games. You know, our producer, you know, at the start of every show, Kev, okay, and Warren, he goes, okay, you got to keep it to 40 minutes. Impossible. Okay. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Jim, have we ever one time? Have we ever one time? No, this is, no, we this is year yep. three, for goodness sakes. <laughs> I know. And we always meet with him ahead of time. Warren and I always go, no problem. No problem. Uh, but there's too much good shit. Uh, we'll talk next week in our, in our uh, mailbag segment. Debbie Paulson has written us about, uh, of course, this high cost of hydro. So we'll get to that next week. Here's another one from Matt. A short one, Warren. Uh, will this be the year that triples becomes a thing? I would hope so. But again, curling clubs in Canada, the USA, they've got to start embracing triples. They've got to start embracing doubles. And they've got to start embracing stick curling. All these are things. Stick curling is a thing that is so easy for people to do, yet we aren't pumping it hard enough. And again, I look at this event in Fredericton. Curling Canada is the organization responsible for the sport in this country. And last time I checked, men's, women's, and mixed doubles are all Olympic sports. What are they doing to further enhance the whole mixed double situation? So I agree with Matt. Triples needs to become part of what's happening, and hopefully this is the year it starts to grab a hold. Do you like triples, Kev? I love triples, Jimmy. Um, and, and you know what? Has, is it grabbing hold? It actually kind of is. I, I'm lucky with the curling store that I talk to this time of year clubs from all over the place that are you know worried about this that and the other thing um and i tend to talk to a lot of them about mixed doubles about triples and four-person curling and and not always having people have to be members of the club and that's what i love about triples it can be a drop-in league the thistle does that here in edmond we'll get bobby popel the manager on one of these days to talk about his what he's done and Mm -hmm. how how it's been received but uh huge success there but the triples game i love it because uh, a new curler coming in maybe hasn't grown up with the game, but you're forced to be the lead. You're forced to be the second, third position, and you're Mm -hmm. forced to hold the broom and figure out how to skip a game in triples. So you really become a pretty well-rounded curler in just a few weeks uh, for for a beginner. And then, you know, if that could be a drop-in league, and if you want to continue to be a a full member of the club, great. If you don't, that's okay. Just continue to be drop-in, and you can play once a month or four times a year. You can play every week, 20 uh, games a year if you want. It's totally up to the person and really opens up the options for people who want to just come and try our great sport. Right. Check it out, folks. Go to your local curling club and, uh, you know, COVID prevented me from doing it, boys, but I'm coming on strong, Warren. I may go to the triples. Uh, So look out. Look out triples world. (laughs) (laughs) How about stick curling world? (laughs) (laughs) We do story time each and every week. And uh, Warren, you're going to tell us about the curling slider, the little deal on the bottom of the shoe. Yes, Jim. And this uh, this was a question that came up, I think, in our Facebook group over the summer was, what's the history of the slider as far as what it's made of and where did this all start? And how did it become a, an actual part of the, how you deliver a curling rock? 
because initially the game was developed to throw the rock from a stationary position on a mat called a crampet. And that was the way curling was played. And then in Canada, it evolved. Uh, the crampet went to kind of a, I think, initially a wire foothold that, again, didn't allow a lot of stability, but it, it took you away from the crampet and allowed the rock to be thrown in a little different manner. But another Edmontonian by the name of Ole Olson back in the late 40s developed something that was referred to as the rubberized hack. And the rubberized hack is what made it possible for people to start to try and leave the hack in the delivery. And from history, the first person who really tried this was the great Ken Watson from Winnipeg, who was a three-time Briar champion, probably the original designer of any kind of uh, curling instruction. And for whatever reason, he decided one day to kick off his toe rubber on his left foot and to slide from the hack in the delivery of the stone. Those initial slides didn't go very far. Initially, you could slide up to the T-line, I believe, before the rock had to be released. But what happened, it was a leather shoe with a rubber heel. And to some degree, this is where the whole idea of the tuck delivery started because you couldn't slide with the rubber heel, so you had to get up on the toe. And as things progressed and people like Bain Secord slid the full length of the ice, they could only do that by getting right up on the toe of the shoe. So there was very little of the shoe in contact with the ice, just the leather. And that's how it initially happened. And of course, as time progressed, they started to go a little farther out, a little farther out, but they still had the, the rubber heel on the shoe. So you couldn't slide on the full foot. God almighty, that'd be hard. <laughs> Holy man. Late, late 50s, I guess, early 60s. Another phenomenon took place in the fact that people started to put liquid solder on the sole of the shoe. It would crack and it would break and it had to keep being redone. But it was one of the first things that was done probably in the early 60s. And I think this to some degree happened in Edmonton because someone who was working at Sherrod Gordon Mines in Fort Saskatchewan discovered Teflon. And initial Teflon was very thick and not that uh, pliable. And this was something that started to be used on the sole of the shoe in probably the early 60s. But again, the rubberized heel. And to some degree, the first teaching operation that was in the mid-60s with Don Dugan and Ray Turnbull, they were actually teaching a method of delivery that had you had to raise the heel off the ice because it was still rubber. And they wanted you to have a rubberized heel because it wasn't safe for you to have a slider the full length of the shoe. I was very involved probably in the early 70s of developing probably the first shoe that had a full slider the full length that originally uh, we tried to get Puma to make that shoe and they did actually make 32 prototypes. It was a different sliding material as well. It was a neoprene. That was actually the first attempt at doing that. It didn't materialize beyond the 32 prototypes. And at that point, I took the idea to Bauer. And Bauer started to make the Bauer Professional back in the mid-70s. It was the first full-length slider on the shoe that had a wedge heel in it. And it, it wasn't Teflon. Teflon, the narrow, uh, thin... Teflon sheets that started to be made marked very easily, and uh, this new neoprene thing we had didn't mark and didn't damage. At the same time, Arnold Asham came out with his red brick slider, which I think everybody is familiar with, and again, it was applied to the full length of the shoe, in some cases, and actually a slip-on slider. And from that point, a lot of different materials became uh, developed. I remember a few people, Pat Ryan being one of them, they actually had a stainless steel slider that was very, very quick. As time progressed, different materials began to be used, and uh, that was sort of how the whole thing progressed and to where we are today, where I think a number of different materials are being used today for sliders. If you want to see something funny, Kevin, Warren, and the good listener, 
I watched it last uh, last night. Shane Corson, the great hockey player who who played for the Oilers at one time, is a really good athlete. They were in a celebrity curling event, and someone mashed together these guys trying to throw a rock coming out of the hack. Okay, and if you do, if you think it's easy, folks, check them out trying to do it. Okay, <laughs> not a chance, Kev. Everyone was falling flat in their face. So, <laughs> thanks a lot, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, another show in the books. Fantastic. We'll be back each and every week. Uh, this week, enjoy the Boost National in North Bay. Kevin will be there. Sportsnet is bringing that to you starting on Thursday morning. Uh, we'd also like to show our appreciation to Rod Paulson, his company, In-House Strategy. He looks after our Facebook, which is very lively. Join it if you'd like. It's a big group and growing all the time. Uh, and you're going to love what's going on with conversations back and forth with Warren. Keeping everyone honest, Kev. Maybe that is our new segment. Send us an email insidecurling at gmail.com we'd also like to thank all our sponsors sports interaction coyote boost and goldline curling equipment for making this show and all the shows possible boys go back to doing what you're doing warren okay you're up early you're right, away on the west coast and uh <laughs> Kevin, what's happened to like? Are you golfing today? <laughs> no, no, we got a little bit of organization to do, Jimmy. Oh, you're going to away. Bay. Yeah, what am I thinking? Of? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, no, I'm excited to get to North Bay, the first event. It's going to be a great one. So everybody enjoy it. And thank you very much. Thanks, Jimmy. Yeah, right on. You've been listening to Inside Curling. Take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Jim. <laughs>